don't know how many of you remember the old show, Kids Say the Darndest Things. Uh, I think there was a couple iterations of it, and I, whenever I see the, the old reruns of it, love to watch kids trying to wax eloquent, and they say these things that are just bizarre. And I've noticed that in, the, in church bulletins and in church uh, illustration volumes, there's, there's an awful lot of Christian versions of these. But, you know, I've, I've also noticed that we'll laugh and chuckle when kids misunderstand things about the Bible because we've failed to teach them properly. And we'll go, oh, silly kids. Uh, one example is uh, my nephew, Bray. I, I'm going like this, but he's actually like this now. He's, he's older than me somehow. Um, he, he's, he's shot up. But when he was a little kid, every week in, in Sunday school, they would pressure the guy to believe in Jesus, ask Jesus into his heart, go and talk to Jesus and, and tell him he wanted to be uh, a follower and, and Jesus would, would make him new. And, and, and each and every week, even though he was perhaps too young to understand these concepts, there was a, a great external pressure on him. And one day he came home and he said, Mom, I think I want to tell Jesus to save me. I want to go and I want to talk to Jesus. And, and she was ecstatic and she said, yeah. And then he started kind of tearing up. And she thought, wow, this kid is really devout and pious. He's like crying. And he said, but will you come with me? I'm very scared. He was shaking. She said, what do you mean? To Sunday school? He said, no, will you come with me to heaven? And, and of course, my first instinct when I hear this is, aw. And then I think, wait, no, 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 no. We need to do a better job of telling children about the gospel, about knowing when to push them to uh, make a decision for Christ and to push them gently, not in a way that's, that's uh, uh, giving them inappropriate outward pressure, and also to use the right language, the language the scriptures use that makes sense. We come in with all these metaphors that Jesus is in your heart and you're going and talking and, and really when someone's old enough to say, oh, repent, turn from my sins and believe, put my faith in, I understand that's when we should say, when will you believe in Jesus? Do you believe? And I've heard three or four others, including two pastors who told me their children uh, were preparing for a trip, one even packing a bag, thinking I'm going to go up to heaven and tell Jesus that I would like to follow him. The one thing that we want to do is point them to Romans chapter 10. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And when a child can understand that, they're ready to put their faith in Jesus Christ, if that is their desire. And so we don't need to climb a ladder up into heaven. We can't climb a ladder up into heaven. In fact, that's what all the religions of the world besides Christianity are trying to do is climb through works and self-mutilation and all sorts of other things into God's presence, and it's impossible. Jesus says only one is ascended, and that is the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. And yet, there is one who was taken up into heaven. And that is a curiosity that we read about in 2 Corinthians 12. That St. Paul, in the midst of boasting now, he's been pushed to the point in his argument with the super apostles to begin boasting about his spiritual situation, about what he has done for Christ, what Christ has done for him. And he's boasting, saying last week, I know it's foolishness, but i got to do it anyway. Because the only way you'll listen to me is if I talk like a fool. And so he feels both a compulsion and a repulsion here. 
saying, I must go on boasting, but there is nothing to be gained by it, but I still have to do it. And so he continues boasting, as he said last week, in his weakness. And he starts to get more specific now. He's not speaking in generalities. Last week, he talked about this situation when he went into Damascus and he went in with power and might to persecute And then he says, when I left, having been won by the Holy Spirit, having been saved and the the, the scales removed from my eyes and born again, I didn't leave in power and might. I left in humility and weakness, lowered out the window in a basket because they were after me and I had to sneak out of there. And so there's another example here at the beginning of chapter 12, given what begins with power and glory and ends with weakness and frailty. So he says, on to visions and revelations. Not only does his opponents boast in their worldly pedigree and boast in their worldly success, they boasted in their spiritual experiences. And Paul says, fine, you want to compare spiritual experiences? It's foolishness for me to do this, but I know that I will blow you out of the water because what I have seen and what I have been through. I know a man in Christ, he writes, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Now this is clearly himself he's talking about. We know because he refers to it later as boasting and this sort of thing, but he speaks in the third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago this happened. He, he won't boast in anything but his weakness. So he'll gladly say, I am the chief of sinners, but when it comes to something glorious, he says, I know a guy, and this happened to him. He sees his true self in the weakness, not the glory, because Christ alone gets the glory. After all, God was the one doing something here, not Paul. Paul doesn't even know what was going on exactly. Was it in the body? Was it out of the body? Who knows? All he knows is that he was taken up, caught up, into the third heaven. Do you know there was three heavens? third one's the best one. The scriptures talk again and again about heavens. In fact, the Greek word and the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word is Shemayim, the Greek word is Uranos, uh, they're rarely, if ever, in the singular. They mean sky or heavens. We read about Jesus passing through the heavens in, in Hebrews 4. In Ephesians 4, we read that he ascended higher than all the heavens. And you have to put yourself, again, back in the shoes of those who are reading these letters for the first time and their understanding of the world was that there was the first heaven basically the realm where you would see birds flying and, and, and clouds blowing around we would say under the atmosphere then there was the second heaven this is the realm of of heavenly bodies the sun the moon the stars the galaxies the planets that they see as they look up and then the third heaven the unseen realm God's abode and he says I know a man in Christ who was caught up into that reality. Whether in the body or, or out, he says twice. I don't know, but God knows. What, what, what happened, either he was caught up spiritually or taken up. And, and we read about people being caught up into the heavens and into visions and revelations throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel 8, we read, he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. Or in Revelation, We read, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. This is St. John talking. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, 
come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he was called, come up here. People have made much of that, trying to build end times theology about what will happen with the church in the end times based on that phrase. All it really tells us is that John's vision was in the spirit and he was called up into the heavens. Either way, though, this is an amazing story for Paul to be able to tell. I would probably brag about it a little bit. I'd be tempted to to break the ice with it. Hi, I'm Zach. I was caught up into the third heaven. What's your thing? But Paul doesn't do this. It's 14 years ago that it happened. Early 40s AD, before his first missionary journey. And now he's been tight with the Corinthians for some time, for years now, and he apparently hasn't mentioned it to them once. This is not something that he's going to bring up or speak of lightly. And he won't even say much about it now, even as he's brought it up. He says, And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. This reminds me a bit of when Jesus says to Nicodemus, If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Paul's been trying to teach some basics of the faith, and the Corinthians are having a difficult time. He's, I'm not going to tell you about my revelations and visions. They're things that, that shouldn't be uttered. Man cannot utter them. And this alone... Besides the fact that they're chock full of unbiblical stuff, is reason to dismiss pretty much all of these heaven tourism type books. You know, oh, my boy died and went to heaven too, and uh, God told him he wanted us to have a lucrative book deal. This sort of thing bristles against the scriptures, in which Paul says, yes, I went up into the third heaven, but man is not to utter these things. There are things that are the secret things of God. And if the apostle Paul is not to utter them, how much less should we? So he tells them that it happened, but not the content. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except for my weakness. Again, he thinks of his true self as being the, the weakness of his, of his body. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul knows if he starts laying out all that he's seen, all that he's heard, he is going to blow their minds. And he's going to win the argument and win the day. But he has no desire to become a superman or enter into some kind of hero worship. If if healing a crippled man and shaking a viper off of his hand into the fire caused people to think he was a god and try to worship him, which they both did then how much will they overreact if he starts telling them the content of these heavenly visions? He says, that's all him. That's all God. I I seem to you like just a regular guy, nothing special to look at. That's because that's what I am. The weakness is mine. The glory is God's. And as he unfolds this, we find that the connection between his weakness and God's glory, it's inseparable. And as one grows, so does the other. There's a a quote that I've seen bouncing around the internet quite a bit lately. It says, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And it's been attributed to a number of different people. And as I see that, I think, that's a bit of a false dichotomy. There's almost nothing in life that doesn't matter if you do it to the glory of God. I think our real fear should be that in succeeding, we will begin to think of ourselves as powerful and inherently successful. And that's what Paul is worried about here. The apostle had warned the Romans, do not think too highly of yourselves. 
Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their, their love of the glory that comes from men, surpassing their love of the glory that comes from God. And we have to be on guard against that as well. One of my favorite uh, musical artists is a guy named Andy Minio, and he, he performs in a genre where people are usually bragging about their fame and how many people know them and love them. And, and yet, again and again in his songs, he talks about how he's afraid of people knowing his name. He's worried about any fame because he knows it will be lethal to his soul. There's a very real danger in becoming a success and then like those in Laodicea saying, well, it must be because I am awesome. And Paul is aware of this danger. And it's not a false modesty that he's coming back with. Rather, it's a lesson that was hard to learn, and it's a lesson that God specifically taught him and is still teaching him. Verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. That seems strange to you. God says, here's a vision Oh, and as a parting gift, here's a messenger of Satan to harass you and, and, and give you this thorn in the, the flesh so that you will not begin to exalt yourself. Well, we know that, that God has the, the wicked spirits at his disposal. Read in Job. Satan himself is, is given leave to go and test Job, including touching his health and, and giving him great uh, infirmities and, and sicknesses. We know that when Jesus healed a crippled woman, he described her as having been bound by Satan for 18 years. And so there is this messenger of Satan. The word messenger, angelos, is just the word angel. So one of Satan's angels here. The ESV says, sent to harass me. I think the King James gets a little closer to the, the thrust of that word when it says to buffet me. To buffet meaning to strike sharply. Or the NIV, also great, to torment me. Whatever the case, it's given in the present continuous tense. This is still going on as Paul is writing to the Corinthians. So the question that always comes up, what was the thorn? It's got to be bad. I mean, think about the juxtaposition here. It's still affecting him after tasting heaven, the abode of angels, He's now getting this kind of constant IV drip of hell on earth. What could it be? Many suggestions have been made. Some have said some kind of psychological struggle. Maybe PTSD from having gone and persecuted the church. Maybe he threw people in prison. Maybe he killed people. Maybe he ruined families. Or others have said maybe it's continued temptation. Something spiritual from his past and it continues to vex him. And he said, God, take it away. Maybe it was his opponents and persecutions, people like the, the super apostles or the Romans who would put him to death at the end of his life. Others have said some sort of demonic oppression. And then there are those who say, but the text says it's in the flesh. It's a thorn in the flesh, so it has to be a physical malady. Maybe migraines, if you know anyone who's dealt with those, they can be debilitating and you would pray, Lord, take them away. Maybe fever from malaria, I read at least one uh, suggestion from a commentator. And then there are those who say, well, the only thing we know Paul really struggled with physically is his eyesight, and maybe that's it. His poor eyesight is, is making his ministry difficult, and he's saying, God, heal me, heal me now. Fact is, we have no idea. Go back all the way to Numbers 33, and you see how old this phrase, a thorn in the flesh or a thorn in the side, is. God tells the Israelites, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, 
then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. It could be anything that continuously vexes Paul. And, and not just an annoyance. The Canaanites and Philistines were far more than annoyance to the Israelites. They, they were there, they were constantly causing trouble and turmoil to the point where they would cry out, Lord, how can you continue to let this to happen? And in that case, God could say, I warned you, you brought it on yourself. But when St. Paul says, Lord, how can you continue to let this happen? Take away this thorn in the flesh. God's answer is, I gave it to you so you will not exalt yourself and become conceited. And Paul doesn't say, well, that's not fair. I didn't ask for those visions. He fully accepts this reasoning, this answer. Three times, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. We think of Jesus' threefold prayer. Remember, again and again, Lord, Lord, if, if this cup can pass from me, but always praying, and yet not my will, but your will be done. And when it was not God's will that the cup should pass from him, he accepted it. We think also of the threefold temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Three times Satan tempted Jesus at the tail end of a 40-day fast. And we see that even with the Son of God, Satan is trying to get into the same kind of foothold that he would have with Paul. He comes in, first of all, with this satisfy the flesh, gratify yourself. Give yourself some, some physical satisfaction. Turn these stones to bread. Eat it. Won't it feel good? Won't it taste good? Won't it be good? Then he comes in with this exalt yourself in the eyes of the people, just like the super apostles. Rather than humbling yourself, exalt yourself. And then finally, the last temptation. He says, you know what? Just bow down and worship me. Just for a second, just bow down, a little bow, and I'll give you all that I have. You don't have to go through all this agony to take it from me. I'll give it to you. Just bow down and worship me for a moment. And as I've read these, I've, I've come to think that Jesus wasn't really tempted by all of these things. Right? You read them and you go, I wouldn't even fall for that. Of course Jesus isn't going to fall for it. But think about what the word tempted means. He really was tempted. Scripture says, in all ways as we are, and yet remained without sin. That means that he felt a pull with these temptations. And he had to overcome them and fight against them. And even this last one, bow down and worship me. Jesus was tempted to be a devil worshiper. How about that? In fact, this last temptation is the one that causes him to sort of lose his cool. Right? With the first two, the temptation is presented to him. He says, I'm not going to do that, and here's why, and here's a scripture verse to back it up. Another temptation, I'm not going to do that. Here's why, here's a scripture verse to back it up. But when he says, bow down and worship me, and I will give all these things to you, Jesus says, away from me, Satan. And there's no exclamation point in the original Greek because there's no punctuation at all, but every translation has one. The grammar demands it. The context demands it. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's disgusted that this temptation has been presented to him, and he overcomes it. Be aware of that danger. We say if St. Paul could be tempted with it, certainly I could. If Jesus could be tempted with it, certainly I could. The temptation each time, all three, was to avoid the cross. Go a different route. 
There's a more comfortable way to go. A way that's more like the super apostles who say, come here and look good, feel good, live your best life now, drive a nice car, you know, have, have a, a, a nice body. We're going we're gonna to improve ourselves together. And then there's the one that says, follow Jesus with a cross on your back and deny yourself. Verse 9, he says, The answer came to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You don't see this in your English translation, but the word said is not in the past tense. It looks like it is. He said to me. It's not in what we call the aorist tense, the simple past. It's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense is like when Jesus says, for it is written, when he's talking to Satan. Yeah, it was written in the past. It's still written now. It's, it's something that will endure forever. The word of God will never pass away. It is written. Or when Jesus says, for it is finished on the cross, it is finished. It's finished at that moment, and it's finished now. That's our hope in Jesus Christ. And, and when Paul says, Jesus said to me, God answered me, he said, it's something that happened in the past, but it continued. Yes, he continues to be struggling with this thorn in the flesh, but this answer continues to resonate with him and encourage him and comfort him. It is, it is written. It is finished. It has been said. He prayed repeatedly and specifically for exactly what he wanted to have happen. He, he said, Lord, I want you to take this thorn away from me. This is Paul, by the way. This is not some lightweight. Right? This is a guy who prayed sight to the blind, who prayed the dead back to life. And he's saying, Lord, take away this thorn from me. Three times he prays. And the answer comes, my grace is sufficient for you. Also in the present tense. It's always sufficient. It's sufficient now, just as it was sufficient then. In our school of prayer on Wednesday nights this past year, we spent a couple of weeks in John 14, 13, where Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This tells us that, yeah, there's that promise, whatever you ask, I will do, but then there's this condition applied, and that happens several times in the New Testament, but in this case, we find that to claim that promise, God's glory must be my aim, which means I must be willing to submit my desires and my prayers to God's glory. And that's what Paul has done here. God essentially says, the struggle will endure, but so will my grace all the more. And so let me give you some words to comfort yourself when you are struggling and when you are frustrated and you ask God to take away the burden or the thorn and he hasn't. Say these words after me. God has given me more than I can handle. Isn't that comforting? I hear people all the time trying to comfort themselves with the opposite. Oh, God won't give me more than I can handle. You read the Bible? That's the one thing he does every time. He's going to bring you to a place of weakness where you go, I can't handle this. And that's where his glory shines. God will give you more than you can handle and your weakness will be magnified. And when that happens, his grace will be magnified and his grace will be sufficient for you. He says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect it's, a good translation would be that the, the manifestation of my power is completed in your weakness. It's like someone's making a, a jigsaw puzzle of the face of, of, of Christ, and the most important pieces are missing. 
And the place that you find those pieces is in your weakness. That completes the picture. My power is completed in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's a very interesting verb there, rest upon me. It actually, it's only used once in the New Testament in exactly this form, but it's a word that means to kind of pitch a tent on. In fact, there's a translation uh, that says, spread a tent over me. The word means to tabernacle upon or rest on or dwell in, and it brings to mind how God's glory rested on the Ark of the Covenant and dwelt in the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Now where does God's glory rest? On you and me. And when is it most present? When we are at our weakest. Robert Fawcett wrote this, The Lord more needs our weakness than our strength. Our strength is often his rival. Our weakness, his servant, drawing on his resources and showing forth his glory. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Man's security, Satan's opportunity. God's way is not to take his children out of trials, but to give them strength to bear up against trial. This is why I reject any system that says God's plan is ultimately to grab the church out of tribulation when he has promised that we will endure it. His grace is sufficient. And when Jesus himself prayed in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Finally, in this last verse, he kind of goes over the top. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm content. That's a very important Bible word. It's actually a dirty word, a four-letter word in America, I think. Never be content, never be satisfied, always want more, always want bigger, always want better, always strive for more luxury, more success, more fame. But it's a core principle of Christianity to be content. Once again, I'm, I'm thinking of this very famous verse that you hear batted around from Philippians 4, always devoid of its context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context is not I can win the gold medal and overcome my adversaries in a really inspiring way and they'll make posters with my face on them. The context is Paul telling us that he knows how to be brought low, writing, quote, For I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This, this verse is not about being a winner in the world's eyes. That's the stuff the super apostles were selling. Rather, it's about being content when you say, God, take away my weakness, my infirmities, my struggles, my, my trials. And he says, my grace is enough. I've learned the secret of facing these things. What's the secret? It's knowing that the stage where God's power is most clearly displayed is not my strength, but my weakness. And that's the point of this passage as well. And yet far more ink has been spilled on what exactly was Paul's thorn in the flesh or what exactly was the nature or the content of his visions and revelations than on what he's trying to tell us. 
I always thumb through books and books of sermon illustrations and almost never find something I want to use. And, and this week I'm going through, and again and again, there are passages, that, there, there, there's the passage at the end, it says, you know, use it for this reference, this reference, this reference. And every one of them that was for this passage was about how when you face trials and you overcome them, it makes you stronger. So I, I go out and face my problems and I beat them and now I'm even more invincible. And that's the opposite. That's a super apostle approach. It's when I face troubles and I say, I can't do this. I need God. I need to rely on him entirely. I, I, I need to embrace my weakness and recognize that God's grace is enough. That's when I find his presence growing in me. Be content. In the King James, he says, I take pleasure in. And then there's this list of weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions. That may be a little too strong, but not much. This is Paul applying the Sermon on the Mount to his own life. Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Blessed are you when people persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of false things about you. For my sake, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And we have, all throughout our churches, all throughout our homes, hanging the ultimate symbol of great power and glory coming through weakness, which is the cross. Christ, God in the flesh, weak and helpless, hanging there, choosing to set aside his glory in order to die and win our salvation. This is one of the most ignored themes in the Bible, and that is one of the most ironic, sadly ironic things I can imagine. You, throughout the scriptures, pride comes before the fall, right? Well, God doesn't want his people to fall. And so he's going to help us with that. God humbles the proud, but lifts up the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. All of Jesus' ministry, if someone comes to him head high, proud spiritually, they walk away low. Either walk away low having rejected him, or walk away low having been saved by him. And every time someone comes to him on their face saying, I'm not worthy, I'm that old shoe that needs to be thrown away, he shows them that he will save them. He will be their God. He will be their redeemer. He will be the one who shows them their value is in being made in the image of God and being redeemed by him. Martin Luther called this distinction the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. And he looked around, and he, he, he traveled to Rome expecting to have this wonderful spiritual experience. He said it was like a circus. And everywhere I looked, everything was about the glory, and it ultimately was the glory of man. We look for God where we would expect to find him. That's what Herod did, right? Oh, i got to find, where, where would a king be born? We find him where we would never expect, in a food trough. We find him where we would never expect to find the king of kings, hanging naked, pinned to a tree, dying as a common criminal. We find him where we would not expect him because that is where he is. We find him in weakness. We don't need to pack a bag and climb our way up to heaven to give ourselves to Jesus because he came down and tabernacled amongst us and gave himself for us. That is a reminder for you when you are frustrated with your struggles. When you have the thorn in the flesh, it might be something psychological or, or it might be some demonic thing. It might be something in the flesh. It might be a, a co-worker that you have three cubicles down, whatever the case, and you're saying, God, why would you let this go on? Hear his answer. My grace is sufficient for you. And it doesn't seem like it now, but this is the best thing that could happen for you. Because in your weakness, my power is complete. Let's go to him now in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we know that this message of the kingdom of God is, is the opposite of what we would want to hear much of the time. Lord, we look for ease. We look for triumph. Lord, we look for self-exaltation. And Lord, we know that whenever we fall into these traps, we are bringing ourselves further from you, not closer to you. We pray that we would learn, just as Paul did, to embrace our weakness. That, Lord, we would learn that your grace is enough. Your grace is sufficient. That, Lord, it's, it's something that is perfected in our weakness. And, Lord, when we are weak, we know we are strong. Because we are not relying on ourselves, but on our God. Lord, we see that throughout the Scriptures. In Gideon winnowing his army down from thousands to merely hundreds. Lord, we see that everywhere represented, and yet we are able somehow to ignore it because we desire lives of power and might and fame and respect. Lord, may we be willing to follow the path of Jesus, to be despised and rejected, to be mocked and spit upon, even to be persecuted for the kingdom of God, and to look at it and say, this is the power of God at work in me. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.